Thank you for listening in today to episode number 12 of My Awakening Podcast. This episode is part two of my conversation with Clarence Presley, where he digs deeper into helping us understand that we may, in fact, have power that we don't even recognize. Clarence also provides some critical understanding of the difference between prejudice and racism. While some of what he shares in this episode was challenging for me to hear, I hope that you will listen to learn and not make judgments along the way. Here is part two of my conversation with Clarence. I don't feel like I have any power, and I'm not sure many of our listeners feel that, so why don't you start there? Yeah, one of the things that you can use interchangeably uh, for power in this context that may help you uh, grasp grasp the con the context or the idea behind what I'm saying is freedom. Uh, the freedoms that you have is power. Uh, I'll give you an example. I was in a training, uh, had to be about five years ago, uh, maybe longer than that. Uh, I went through a training uh, that was dealing with race, the power of an illusion. And it was a group of us, and then they took it a step further. What they did is they had we had, you know, uh, white males and females. There were uh, Indian from uh, India, Indians from India, Native Americans. Uh, there were uh, various groups of Asians uh, from China, Japan, Vietnam. Uh, there are various Latinos, uh, Latinos and Latinas. Uh, uh, we had folks from Mexico. Uh, then we had some people from South America and it just kind of came full circle. And then you had a pocket full of black people. And I, I never forget the question. They they started with the white people intentionally. They talked about, you know, the things they could do. And they talked about like, yeah, if I want to get on a plane and take a flight to anywhere I want to go, I can do that if I have the resources uh, if I feel like I'm in trouble, I can call the police uh, and feel very comfortable about the interaction with the police. Uh, and, and it just went through a, a whole lot of questions, <clears throat> vacations, vacationing. And then they asked uh, a, a final question to everyone at the end. They said, what is it that you're most uh, proud of, of your culture? Like, what, what is it that you feel your culture represents? And, and the white males started first. They did it continually. It was like the white males talked about, you know, yeah, just, you know, I have access. That was a big word. I have access to pretty much anything I want if I put my mind to it. Like, I have access. You know, uh, the white women had a very similar story, maybe with a little bit more restriction and as you went down this kind of a rainbow of ethnicity, you know, it kind of started from white and then it kind of worked its way through the yellow, uh, meaning through the Asians, all the way down to the darker, the skin complexion until you got the black. You kept hearing more and more restriction, more and more restriction. When you got to the Indians in India, 
that were in the room. I'm not rep, uh, I'm not at one at all trying to say that they represent all people, right? But in this room, uh, they shared that you know we love big families. We're we're strong on family. Uh, the Mexican gentleman that was in there, he talked about La Raza, you know, and in Mexican culture. And when it got to the black people, before it even got to me, it got very limited. Talked about food and entertainment, our influence. But it didn't talk about access. It didn't talk about uh, police interactions, trusting that process, trusting law enforcement. It didn't talk about vacationing anywhere I want. So what they were doing, they were painting a picture in the room to show how much freedom or how people navigate or even the understandings of how we're wired to see the world. And and it, it reminds me, we were talking a moment ago uh, that you have a book here, uh, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. And one of the examples that she uses a story in her book where she says that she goes to the bank and there's a black woman and a white woman, uh, both in the bank. And uh, they both have young boys around the same age. I'm just going to say both around five, six years old. And the little white boy in the bank, you know, he's, it's an adventure to him. He's wandering around the bank, looking at things, picking things up, walks over to the security guard and, you know, is pointing at his gun and pointing at his badge and, you know, just kind of familiarizing himself with the bank, you know, almost in a degree like he has a right to. This is our bank. This is my mom's bank. We bank here, you know, and mom doesn't have a care in the world about him moving around. But with the black woman, she's keeping her little boy close to her. Don't move. Stay close. Stay next to me. Don't touch that. Because she's afraid that something can happen. And by the time mom gets up to the teller, there's another black woman in the line that is looking. And again, I'm paraphrasing all of this. This isn't word for word. It may not even been little girls, but I'm paraphrasing it just to give the audience the example that she uses. And another black woman, when the mother gets to the teller, the little black boy starts kind of putting her hands on stuff, touching things, because you can see the little white boy moving around. And the other black woman kind of tugs on the black boy and gives him an eye like, stop that. Doesn't even know him. Because it's kind of an unspoken language that you don't have the same freedom, the same access, right? And she gives another example of uh, uh, a mom, a white mom, and a black mom, and both of their boys play on the same athletic team. And they're both great athletes and great academically. And they're having an award ceremony. And, and when little Johnny, the, the, the young white man, uh, gets his reward or, or award, excuse me, uh, the black woman says to the black mom, hey, little Johnny's fantastic. Again, paraphrasing. That's probably not the names. And she says, yeah, you're right. He is great. He is awesome. Yeah, his dad taught him that. Fantastic. And let's just say when little Jovan gets this award, the white mom says to the, the black mom, hey, 
Javon did a great job too. And mom automatically says, yeah, but he could work on some things. Yeah, but, yeah, but. And it's this defense mechanism of almost like, I can't let him get too much praise. I have to limit that. And, and, and she talks about that going all the way back to the plantations of slavery. That if a slave taskmaster came by and if your child seemed smart, if they said, oh, you got a smart one there, huh, Sally? No, sir. No, sir. She's a dumb one, sir. Because they were fearful that their children would be taken. So it's kind of a programming that's been passed down. Again, that's systemic racism. And guess what? Maybe you had no part in the shaping of that. But it was a system that was put in place that has created limited access for certain groups of people that don't have the same privileges that you do. And even if you're not the wealthiest person, you still have access. I was talking to a friend of mine, acquaintance of mine rather, uh, and he was sharing with me. He said, man, my, my mom grew up poor. Okay. We're not talking about meritocracy. Yeah, and if it wasn't for a family who adopted her in, you know, that's what moved her out of her environment. So another white family adopted her and took her in and put her in private school and educated her. And I said, that alone is access that we don't have. We're not getting adopted out of the neighborhood to move into a family, an affluent family's home, you know, where we can go to a, a, a private school and even like you and I talk even if I went to a private school is it going to help me or hurt me it could help me academically but would there be trauma that's connected to that so again when we're talking about power we're talking about freedom we're talking about access we're talking about privilege right there's that's power and some people have way more than others and there are systems in place to try to continue to keep it that way. Yeah. I think that helps me. Uh, you broadened out the word power. Uh, maybe I had a somewhat of a narrow uh, perspective on what that what power means. And so uh, thank you for broadening that out for me to have a better understanding of that. I think I get that. Hmm. That's yeah. good. Yeah, thank you. So uh, along the same line, uh, the other day you started a conversation that we both agreed would be a, a great piece to include as a part of this podcast, and I'm excited to hear more myself because we didn't go very far with it in our conversation at lunch the other day. But uh, you felt like there was quite a bit to say about differentiating between um, racism and prejudice. So uh, can you expound on that a bit for us and help us understand those things and the difference between them? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to give you my definitions. You can go back and look them up. But prejudice, uh, we all can be prejudiced, right? Every person on the planet. It's our biases, right? We can be biased uh, based on skin color, based on height, based on weight, based on classism, you know, uh, neighborhoods. I mean, we can have prejudice on all types of things. 
And I think oftentimes when people hear, <clears throat> excuse me, the word racist or racism, and, and they, they say, I don't think it exists anymore. I think that's just people are using that as a, as a, as a crutch, as a scapegoat. It doesn't exist. What they're, what they're thinking about is segregation. They're thinking about uh, white water fountain, black water fountain. They're thinking about white only restaurants. Yeah, that's, that was, that's part of racism, but that was blatant prejudice. One of the things growing up in the South, and this may sound strange, but I've talked to a number of uh, black people from the South who've actually moved to the North, and many of us shared a commonality. We shared the fact that, you know what, in the South, you know, yeah, it's, it's racism all over North America, for sure. But we were talking about the prejudice. It's like, with the prejudice, at least we knew what we were dealing with. It was blatant. You knew a neighborhood didn't want you there. Not saying right or wrong, but at least you knew. But in the, in the North sometimes, some of the very people that you think are welcoming you are sabotaging you at the same time and don't even know it often because they're deeply ingrained into a culture of institutional or systemic racism. And racism is about power, which we just mentioned. It's about systems of power that are continually placing people without power keeping them limited and restricted for the benefit of others. Others are gaining. And then you may say, well, I don't gain. See, this whole idea of systemic racism, it keeps the privilege privileged. So that's why you don't have a lot of fuss about it. You know, you can say, well, I'm not prejudiced. But when we talked about earlier, uncomfortability. But Derek, you better not shake up my comfort, right? Don't touch my comfort because if I feel like you're going to take anything away from me, even if it really didn't belong to me, you got to fight on your hands because our minds have been conditioned to believe it to be a benefit. Of course, anything that makes you feel comfortable, you want to keep it coming. Who likes irritation? Who likes uncomfortability but what about the people who live in uncomfortability every single day right so when you begin to think about here here's something for folks who don't understand systemic racism and how all this plays out and you just assume right that okay well why are there so many single parent households in black and brown communities well, did, have you ever studied history to see that the psychological trauma that was passed on from slavery and people say, get over slavery. You can't. Just like generational wealth is passed on, generational trauma is passed on. Let me let me share what I mean by that. And then I'll go back to this, this slavery process. I grew up in an environment and maybe some, you know, I think white people have experienced this too, but I grew up in an environment where... Uh, in the South, my, my family members, my elders didn't use terms like spanking. 
They use words like whipping. You're going to get a whooping. And it was, if you think about it, it's directly related to slave trauma. It wasn't, we're going to put you on timeout. You're going to get a whooping. You know, it was, it was this conditioned programming because that's what they got. And that's what their ancestors got. And that's what their parents got before them. So it was passed down. So you, you go all the way back and you think about the dynamic of like some of the single parent household. And I'm going somewhere with this, by the way. It started because they separated families all the time. And if you do any research on Willie Lynch, people think it's a myth, but it's true. You start looking at some of this Willie Lynch kind of teaching of you separate the slaves. That's how you break them. You separate their children and you move them out and you separate the male from the female because they were subhuman. They were below human. They were like breeding animals. You separate them. Well, that gets passed down, right? And even over time, historically, historically, when black families were trying to come back together after slavery was abolished, right? They were trying to come back together and they were sharecropping in the South. And then they started moving North when you start having, you know, uh, the auto industry. And after World War II, the people were migrating and moving to places like Chicago and Detroit and in California. And as they were making these moves, they were transitioning from being uh, uh, basically, you know, sharecroppers. But sharecroppers, the way they survived is they had big families because they couldn't hire people. Because it wasn't like they were getting paid with money. They just got a chance to eat from the land that they were occupying. So you had to have your children out there with you. Now you move to Chicago with 10 kids. And you're placed in a housing project that used to be a military barrack. Mm -hmm. Right? And it's called a project because it's an experiment. We're going to stack all these people on top of each other, of these specific ethnic groups primarily low income and you move into these places. And now dad, who was once a sharecropper gets a job as a metal shop worker. Well, in the metal shop, he, re he receives probably only a third of the pay of his white counterpart during these times. They got to feed these kids. But after world war II, they came out with the welfare system. Most people don't know that welfare was not offered to black people. Welfare was originally designed, right, for people, uh, soldiers who lost their lives, I believe in World War I, uh, and the government uh, decided to give supplement to their families. But then after the market crashed and we went through the Great Depression, they opened welfare up for more people and families. Mm -hmm. But later on in time, what they determined was that only way you can receive welfare is the father could not be present in the home. So they created a brand new extension of government called Department of Child Support, which was not a bunch of counselors, but was actually a bunch of bill collectors or debt collectors. So they would literally knock on your door at two in the morning to make sure a man was not in the house. So when black families moved mm -hmm. to the inner city and they had these large families, 
and they was trying to make ends meet, call it deceitful, call it whatever you want. But they were like, we need some of that welfare money just to help ends meet because we're living in the projects with 10 kids and you're only getting paid a third of what the average white worker makes at the same job. So what they did, they, they said, let's get on welfare. But you got to lie and say, I don't live here. But now they're knocking on the door. Dad can't be there. He got to be out of the house. So eventually you begin to move dad out of the house where he started having another family. Then you introduce drugs into the black community and it begins to destroy the very fabric. And that's everywhere. It's not just black community. It's all communities. But intensely in these poor communities, you have this system that over time, and I can give you so many more pieces, but I don't want to take up too much time, that destroys the fabric of the black family. One of the things that also played a part in that, and this is going to sound probably very hypocritical of me to say, but it's true if you study it historically. Integration actually hurt black community because it happened so fast when it happened. Now, that sounds really bad. I know people are like, yeah, some people think, yeah, you're right. But integration needed to happen. I'm not saying it didn't. But what took place when prior to integration, all black families lived in the same community. So you had black leadership, you had families, you had business owners, people lived in a neighborhood. So your, your school principal and your mechanic, your neighborhood mechanic may have been your baseball coach and they, they mentored and your local pastor and the janitor, you know, at the school may have been your basketball coach. You know, they all helped in community together because they lived there. But when integration happened, it was kind of like, just like they say, the white flight, there was a black flight of those that had a little bit more means. They wanted out. They moved out and they left the poor, the widowed, and the seniors. A lot of sick folks there in what became known as our ghettos. And people were there hurting. And this is what all the attention you know, gets focused on is these neighborhoods stopped becoming, stopped being neighborly and just became hoods, right? And this is all a part of that same cycle that goes all the way from slavery. And you begin to see how families were destroyed. And now we get to this whole school to prison pipeline. Last time I checked, we were close to 80%, something in the high 70s percentile of African-American or black homes are single-parent households. So guess how many prisons they are building? And it's a business. So when we're talking about systemic racism, we're not just talking about saying, hey, I don't like black people. We're talking about systems that continue to keep people oppressed and put into certain positions. And this isn't a, a, a cop-out this isn't me trying to say, well, you know, I know someone may be listening right now thinking, well, why don't you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps? Meritocracy. Well, if you just worked hard, we work hard. If you just work hard, you got a head start. And, and I hate to say it that way, but it's true. There's families that's been in this country passing on. You say, well, we didn't have wealth. All we had was that old house. At least you could own a house. Black people couldn't even get finance for housing until the 60s. Think about that. It's only been 60 years that black people could get financing yeah. to buy a home. 
when there's some families here in the United States that have had property in their families for 400 years, 300 years, 200 years that's been passed down. Land is valuable. Yes, it is. Ownership is valuable. Well, if they wouldn't ruin their credit, who, how long have you known about credit versus how long have a community that couldn't even get finance known about credit? That's systemic racism. That's privilege versus prejudice. When people think about prejudice, well, no, I like people. I love all people. I'm not saying you don't. But I want you to understand that there is a system in place, you know, and, and don't think of this as a conspiracy. It's all over. Just open your eyes and look. Pay attention. And I love what you're doing. Take the time just to go talk to someone and hear their story. Yeah, that's been eye-opening to me. I hope the listeners are hearing these things. <laughs> yeah. Because I certainly am. And looking you eyeball to eyeball and hearing this, that's powerful stuff, man. It is. Thank you for sharing all that. Well, thank you for letting me share. And, and I, I just want to say to your listeners, I'm not saying this to hurt anyone. I, I am so blessed and fortunate to be here with you because... My desire is I just want people to get it. You know, get an understanding. Have a little understanding. We need relationships. If we're going to start any form of healing, we got to be willing to step outside of our comfort zone and develop authentic relationships. Don't just tell me what I want to hear. Trust me, my wife doesn't just tell me what I want to hear. You know, uh, but we have a, solid, authentic relationship that is trustworthy because I know she's going to tell me the truth. And those are the things that we need to have is these courageous, truthful conversations. You know, that's not attacking. Not one time have I said, Joe, you did this. Not one time have I said on here, you people, you people are doing this. All I'm stating is these are realities. These are realities that I've experienced that in many, many millions more are experiencing every single day and would love to have a conversation with someone who's willing to listen. But if you're already convinced that there is no truth to this because your comfort uh, may feel at risk, You've already lost the battle. We, we can't, we're not going to progress as a people, as a community, as a nation, if we're unwilling to have those conversations. It, it does not remove, even from me, areas of growth that I have to work on. So I'm not using this as an excuse mechanism or a cop-out for me becoming a better person either. And I think people assume that like you just want to uh, blame shift and dump everything in on 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 us. No, that's not the case. But we can't have reconciliation until we take ownership for what is ours. That's everyone. Reconciliation takes both parties taking ownership and being willing to come to the table and exchange some things. Yes. Right? But if you can if you continue to think that, oh, you know, I don't want to do this. You know, we we have to take some ownership. Like, there's things I can do to be a better man, 
to be a better father, a better husband. You know, I can do a lot better with my finances, but I can also be honest and say there's some things I wasn't privileged to have access to. I wasn't taught. You know, like you mentioned to me where you were raised, you know, both parents in the home. No, you shouldn't be embarrassed about that. That's amazing. Oh, I'm not embarrassed at it. You know, no, I know you're not, but I'm just saying people out here, you know, like they don't want to talk about it, but you, you, both parents at home and in a safe community, those memories you should cherish, right? You shouldn't feel guilty about that, but understand there's people that didn't have that. Right. And it's not always because someone did something diabolical or bad. Some of it is just historically has been a part of systemic racism, you know, poverty. You, you know what I mean? When you're, yeah. when you're born into poverty and, and when you look at the, the, the numbers of people coming out of slavery, how are they going to develop wealth? And when they try, it was stripped from them. Just go check out Green, uh, uh, what is it, uh, Greenwood in the Greenwood District in, in Oklahoma in Tulsa. You know, check out uh, uh, what's the place down in Florida, uh, um, Rosewood in Florida. Places that were thriving, that were developing, and they both both of those towns and probably many others that we don't know about were burnt down. They were destroyed. So people have to start over, all over again with nothing. Well, listen, I really appreciate your um, your, heart, your heart more than anything, your willingness to share honestly and openly with whatever I wanted to know here today. Hmm. <laughs> and uh, in some ways, more than I maybe bargained for, <laughs> if I could say that. Um, and uh, I, I'll need some time to process this. This just adds to more of uh, things. And I, uh, I can't thank you enough for just for this conversation. So I appreciate very much you being here with us today. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate being here. We are excited to announce that we have just created a platform for you to communicate directly with Clarence or other previous podcast guests. Go to our new Facebook group called My Awakening Podcast Discussions to ask questions or make comments for Clarence or other previous podcast guests. We look forward to your engagement with us. A heartfelt thank you to Clarence for being our guest on episode number 11 and number 12. Clarence shared much deep understanding with us that is worthy of our further review and thought. I hope you will allow this understanding to better inform your perspective on what is happening in America today and has been for too long. Remember to begin educating yourself about systemic racism and what is really going on with our long-standing racial problems by going to the resources section of our website at myawakeningpodcast.com. If hearing from Clarence today was meaningful for your journey, please subscribe to and share our podcast with your friends. You can now listen to and share this podcast using our website, Facebook, YouTube, or your favorite podcast player. We will continue to provide consistent, thought-provoking content 
to increase our understanding of systemic racism. I hope this podcast helps to move us all towards becoming better citizens in a more diverse America. Remember that together we can make the systemic changes that are needed to heal America's racial divide and achieve justice for all. <laughs>